We're understanding culture in the context of what's happening in the world right now, but we're using predictive models to understand where is it going to be two years from now, four years from now, six years from now. The tools of cultural intelligence allow you to see that change early on. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sandisford of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Terry Young, CEO of Sparks and Honey, a cultural intelligence consultancy. Terry will be talking to us today about the importance of culture, post-pandemic principles of work, and how to affect change in organizations. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Terry, thanks so much for coming on the show today. Absolutely. Matt, Luke, happy to be here. You came to our attention from a, a mutual friend, a, a good friend of mad scientist, uh, Peter W. Singer. He, he said, you have to check out this company, Sparks and Honey, and it's described as a cultural intelligence consultancy. Can you tell us a little bit about Sparks and Honey, how you came to found the company and what your main goals are? Yeah, Absolutely. Sparks and Honey, I wrote the business plan for the company about 10 years ago. So we're coming up on our uh, 10th anniversary in March of 2022. And the idea behind it in its most simplest, in the simplest form is how do we make sense of culture? How do we understand what's happening around us? What makes humans make the decisions that they make? And how do we translate that back into opportunities for organizations. That could be new business models, new products, new ways to think about uh, threat identification, opportunity identification. And I kind of say that, and it sounds simple, but making sense of culture is not a simple thing. I mean, culture is the thing that's happening around us every day that's shaping our behaviors, the way we think in the world, the way we operate. And to really understand culture, we've had to do a couple of things. One is we have created an AI system, an artificial intelligence, cultural uh, intelligence system that allows us to map culture at scale. So it reads what is happening in the world from social media, to patents, to blogs, looks at influencers, looks at policy changes, academic papers, scientific discoveries, emerging ingredients, all of those things which are fairly different in nature and we've created a taxonomy of culture that allows us to categorize it. So how do we take all of the, these wildly different concepts, different signals, as we call them, categorize those signals, cluster those signals, and put some kind of quantification around them? That's what the system does really well. It does it in multiple languages, does it at scale. And then it comes to the humans. And you're going to hear me talk a lot about man and machine, human and machine, that this kind of work in culture is not one or the other. You know, if you think about traditional futurists, it was about intuition and, and, and having keen observation. If you think about AI, you think about, you know, uh, systems that are going, we're gonna flip a switch and it's gonna do it all for us. We're firm believers that that's a 50-50 equation, you know, that, that those two things come together and that the machines allow us to see change and signals at scale and the humans allow us to translate that into opportunity because they put the, the nuance, the language around it that allows us to make sense of where the world is going. And you know, in, in its simplest context, we talk about what we do as helping organizations see around corners. You know, what's next in the world? What's going to surprise you? What's going to change your business? What could disrupt you? And then how do you either mitigate that threat or how do you turn that into an opportunity for your organization? I think that's some incredibly cogent points when it comes to uh, kind of the ability of, of AI to take these mass amounts of data uh, and process a lot of it very quickly, but still needing that human um, kind of nuance and context for it. I had a lot of questions because I think <laughs> this is a fascinating effort of what you're working on. Uh, the first question really is kind of 
how do you codify all this? I mean, this is this is a lot of information when you talk about um, this is not just, hey, we're talking about self-driving. So it's it's iterations of driving. Um, you're talking about very wide spanning things when you say culture. Um, so how do you how do you sort through all that? How do you work through it? Great question. So um, there's a lot of layers to this answer. One thing that we do is we have a vertical stack of thinking about culture. And in that vertical stack, we think about megatrends. So those are trends that are going to impact organizations eight to 10 years out. And, and that can be something like climate change. That can be you know th those really long-term um, areas. Then we look at macro trends. Those are trends, those are areas or shifts in society that are gonna impact us in the next one to three years. And then we think about micro signals, the small little signals that are happening all around us all the time that can be indicators of short-term change, right? And we wanna look at them in a vertical stack. And in order to do that, the AI, which we have trained reads a taxonomy of 160 different uh, mega macro trends and automatically categorizes those trends in real time. So it's using NLP to read things that are out in the world, uh, image recognition, analysis, uh, cluster and codify so that then humans can come on top of that and do something with it. With that said, part of your question is also what well, culture changes all the time. And so does the taxonomy. The taxonomy is a living, breathing, dynamic organism that as culture changes, we see a shift and that shift is put into a queue. And when enough other shifts that look like it cluster together, it gets a name. And that is the burgeoning of a, of a brand new thing that we're, we're monitoring. And we do an official calibration of the system every 90 days. But things can emerge on a much faster uh, pace. And there are things that have been around for, for quite some time, but, but that's kind of how the system works in that, you know, culture is complex. The taxonomy gives you a mechanism of categorizing culture. The AI gives you the ability to do that at scale. And then the methodologies that we use on the other side, I, I say this sometimes, think about what we do like a McKinsey or Bain or BCG, those large man management consulting firms, but we do it always through a cultural lens. Like every, every framework that we've developed is designed to understand culture at scale and give you a sense for where culture is going. Why are tribes forming in a certain way? What does this micro tribe look like today and how is it going to develop tomorrow? So forth and so on. So kind of segueing from that, because that's a hard task. That's that's not uh, something that your your everyday developer say can come up with. And so I'm curious, what is what is the Sparks and Honey team look like? What's it composed of? Because is it you know uh, along the lines of hey, we have a ton of data scientists and folks who are, are experienced in programming and coding. Um, is it hey, we really need to get influence uh, from those kind of cultural analysts who already understand the nuance? Or is the answer yes? <laughs> we have a little bit of all of what you said. Um, so Sparks and Honey, as I said, we've been around for about ten years. We're about eighty people. Um, I think of us as as human and machine, you know, like like the humans that that actually um, uh, distill the, the, what comes out of the AI, and and then our AI intelligence system is, is called Q. The, the mix of the team is data science engineers. It is anthropologists. It's sociologists. It is people who would, um, you know. Uh, be a traditional strategist, you know, consultant kind of strategist. I think that it requires in all of those facets, people that are edge dwellers and edge dwelling is, is part of what we do. I mean, we're edge dwelling at the horizontal, meaning that, you know, we want to stumble upon what is emerging and what's next. And that means that you are seeing small signals start to emerge and you have the the ability to understand where it is today, but then you use techniques and AI and, and models to project where it's going to be tomorrow. And that's one of the powerful things about what we're doing. We're understanding culture in the context of what's happening in the world right now, but we're using predictive models to understand where is it going to be two years from now, four years from now, six years from now. And to give you an example of that, because everyone, usually when I, I say that, they're like, that sounds good, but what do you mean, right? Here, here, here's one that would be easy to, to, to imagine. 
Uh, probably if you think back, I don't know, eight years ago, let, let, let's just rewind the time to eight years ago. Um, and you were following what was happening with vegetarianism, right? And you were thinking about people who are only eating a vegetarian diet that, you know, started to evolve into veganism. And we look at those as micro tribes, small uh, uh, subset, small audiences, small segments that have something that, that creates cohesion of those particular groups. Um, we were hired in around 2016, 2017 by a meat producer to help them understand the future of meat, right? What we told them is uh, the future of meat is going to look very different in 2021 than it looks in 2016. And there are a couple of factors. One factor is that research is showing that on average, Americans just want to eat less meat period. And you can say, okay, we want to eat less meat, but this is a pretty meat eating country. Not everyone's going to run and be a vegetarian tomorrow. And then we went on to do additional analysis and saw this burgeoning um, shift around what was happening with vegetarianism and veganism to being transitioned into plant-based proteins. That this, this idea, the language was changing and there were some very, very, very early um, entrance into the space. Around 2016, that market was about a $30 million market, very small. We went back to them and said, hey, this is a place to double down on. It is going to change. It's going to grow at an incredible velocity. And we did the performance and the models. And we looked at it from a consumer lens, a societal lens, but then an economic impact for them. Fast forward a year and a half after that, that's around when Beyond Meat and, and these, these new um, uh, companies that eventually IPO'd, I think the industry today, and this is only five years later, is a $3.5 billion industry. And about $16.5 billion has been invested into that industry. And that was something that was a really small little spec when we, when we suggested it. And what I will tell you about this kind of work is the tools of cultural intelligence allow you to see that change early on. And it is allowing you to go outside of a category, a vertical, a segment, and look at society at large, and then translate that into opportunity areas, vectors of change, and then quantify it. And, and that's what we talk a lot about. How do you quantify culture? But as a receiver of that information, it's very easy to dismiss it. It's very easy to say it's $30 million today. I'm not going to place my bets in those particular areas. This particular company actually did, but I would just tell you that that is one of the things that the data can uncover incredible change. And sometimes people struggle with leaning into what that change is, is, you know, what it's actually going to look like and placing their bets in those areas. Well, I'd say we know quite a bit about uh, trying to convince people of change um, especially as it relates to their their heritage or tradition, maybe even the founding principles or organization. I want to ask one more question before I let Matt talk because this is just too fascinating. But the the thing that you started talking about in terms of meat market, I think that was interesting because you're not working just in the kind of this national security, defense, intelligence sector. Um, I, I'm curious as to what areas uh, outside of you know that traditional way we kind of think of it, uh, where's Sparks and Honey looking at? What kind of markets and areas? Great question. So our main focus is the Fortune 100. So what, what would those companies be? PepsiCo's, Facebook's, <laughs> TikTok's, you know, the, the Amazon, those kind of companies. And we work across almost any vertical. With that said, uh, we, we came to you and probably got on your radar a little bit because although that is represents 70% of our work, there's about 30% of our work that's in philanthropy, nonprofit, think tanks, uh, uh, government. So we've done work with the Department of Defense, specifically with DARPA. We work with a few um, large think tanks looking at new policy changes out of DC and a lot of foundations that, that are looking at more uh, policy oriented and, and complex change. So, so the types of clients are, are broad, but what we do for them is the, is the same no matter what. I mean, for a Fortune 500 client, we might be identifying plant-based proteins and telling them what acquisitions to make, what products to create, and helping them with their transformation agenda, right? For a government client, we might be helping them understand Muslim youth and what that means to fighting the war on terror 
and how you understand um, uh, terrorism through a completely different lens. And I, I, I am working on a, a paper right now where we, we were just reflecting on intelligence in general, because in the government, intelligence is squarely in the center. I mean, you have so many people working on getting the best intelligence to tackle what everything is happening in the world. You know, what, what's happening from uh, conflict areas to a wide range of, of, of different things. What's going to be the impact of Brexit and the economic uh, challenges and so forth and so on. With that said, I, I think that there is maybe less of a focus on cultural intelligence. This idea that I can go out of the vertical and I can look at the underlying um, shifts that are impacting uh, why people make the decisions they make. And I was talking with uh, Farah Pondis. She's actually an advisory board member for Sparks and Honey. She worked under Obama. She worked under Bush. And we um, were, were chatting about intelligence and, and the intelligence gathering in government versus this nuance of of cultural intelligence. And she, she was making the point that if you think about extremism, whether it's domestic terrorism or uh, extremism beyond the walls of the US, that you don't tackle just the bad actor that has already been radicalized. You wanna rewind to what are those drivers that get someone to that radicalization point in the first place, because that's how you tackle it at scale. You know, you think about things like tribalism, economic stratification, you know, things that create a lack of belonging, because when there's a lack of belonging, then you look for something to belong to. And that's where cultural intelligence is so powerful. It is social, anthropological, uh, psychological, and it's looking at society, why we make the changes, or uh, we make the choices that we make. And it can allow you to uh, look at opportunities or threats from a completely different lens. And if I apply, if I say that from a, a corporate standpoint, you could have a corporation who says, hey, I'm in the beverage category. I'm in the uh, automotive category. But that's a very myopic way of thinking about something. Really, you want to understand uh, the people who buy your products, the policies that shape those buyers, and how you understand change at scale, even when it's first emerging. And that's kind of the power of what you get from cultural intelligence. Yeah, that, that's a, a very good point. I think it's very well said. Um, and I think the army, at least in some small part, is starting to look more and more at the human side. Um, there's usually a big focus on materiel, technology. And oftentimes you can overlook that it's a human that has to use all of this stuff. And if you understand the human side of it, you understand more of the why, and then you can understand your adversary in a more holistic way. And it gives you better you know, predictability. So kind of looking at some of the specific things your organization has done, on July 28th, uh, your company released a new report entitled The Equity Effect, Principles for the Post-Pandemic Organization. Um, it's a fascinating read. It really challenges some of the conventionally accepted work and office norms. Um, and I know the Army is looking at this, too. They're kind of an, analyzing the future of work for their workforce um, and kind of looking out to the future and trying to say, how, how can we better get the best out of our employees? So let's start off talking about that report by talking about the word equity, which is right in the title. What does equity truly mean and why is it so important? So um, let me let me back up to give you some details on, on why we got to, to equity. Uh, you know, coming out of the pandemic, I mean, we're still still in it, but lots of changes and ripples across organizations because of the pandemic. Every year we produce a uh, an IP report, something that we put out to the world to tackle uh, where change is happening and, and the impact on organizations. Uh, last year, we did one that was called the future of giving that, that challenges the way philanthropy is going to unfold in the future. The year before that, we looked at uh, precision consumer 20, 2030. What do, will consumers look like in 2030? Uh, the impact of genomics and microbiome and all of these type of new data sources on the way we, we will show up in the world. Uh, when we started looking at our research for this year, we started to ask the question of what's going to happen to the modern organization? What, what, has, what pressures have been put on organizations? Um, what are those things that are going to reshape the way we work, the way we lead, the way we show up? And where we got to was where, where we landed 
is on this idea that this post-pandemic um, organization has to think about equity at its center, that the, the sense of creating fairness, that it is not just about what the organization wants, but it is about creating a better world in a lot of different facets. And there's basically five different chapters to the report. And what I would say is each of them um, are areas that are probably on an organization's radar, but most organizations are not taking them serious, not really leaning into them in a way that is, it's kind of like the, the plant-based proteins, that they're really small today and they're checking a box, but they may not be taking them, they may be, still be dismissing the bigger implications for the way work will have to evolve over the next five years. And in some cases has already evolved because of the velocity of change from the pandemic. And so that, that, that's really um, where we got to the body of work. And the, the, the concept is how do we build equity or the quality of being fair at the center of the way we lead and design organizations of the future? So I think, you know, one of the things you talked about was kind of this comprehensive look at um, the, the report really dives into a number of factors, not just one um, on what what the equity effect looks like. And I think that one of the big lessons learned from the pandemic was just how important personal mental health is. So we've seen it in lessons learned all over the place, not just in workplaces, uh, but you see corporations even stressing the importance of this because they recognize uh, vitality to the American worker. Can you talk a little bit about your findings on how taking care of employee health can actually improve an organization overall? Absolutely. So one of the concepts that we talk about in the report is called ergonomics of health, and it really double clicks on um, wellness. I think up until now, we have thought about wellness as something that was important. You, you had HR programs that were, you know, let's, let's build a wellness uh, play in, into, into the program. I think we are challenging that notion and saying wellness is a human right, that, that this is fundamental to the way an organization operates, that a CEO, a leader of an organization has to be thinking about the physical mental and emotional wellness of their employee base. And they should be designing products, services, and outputs to the world, to society at large, that takes into account all three of those. And I think this um, notion of mental health is the one that most leaders and organizations are most uneasy about, right? Because it is how do we ensure that people are resilient, that they're feeling good about changes, that that with everything that happened around you with the pandemic, that you have outlets to discuss it, that topics that maybe traditionally have been taboo are no longer taboo in the workplace, that, that we understand the whole human, not just the part of the human we want to do the work on behalf of the company, right? And I think that requires a level of empathy that um, some leaders have not really created uh, the tools around. It is going to require different policies and different practices in order to give people space and to have those moments of healing when 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 they need it. And I, I think we're we're seeing. I mean, you know, you look at uh, Naomi Osaka when she dropped out. You know, a purely you know because of uh, and it was a whole conversation around mental health. You know, if you rewind, I think five years ago, Nike, you know, their, their tagline is just do it. You know, it's like it's like go for it without a cost, right? Like no matter what. And I think they were very evolved in the way they uh, leaned in and, and supported her throughout that. And I think those are some of the conversations that are emerging in this, this ergonomics of, of health, because if wellness is a human right and we have to think about physical, emotional and mental, I think many times we probably had programs on the physical side, but few programs, practices, policies, and leadership qualities that allow us to, to really manage the mental and the emotional. I think that rings true for us as well, because if you, if you look at the Army, one of the top priorities is soldier readiness. And if a soldier is distracted, in distress, unhealthy, in non-physical ways, non, you know, mental health is probably still considered a, a physical detriment, but 
they have to be able to get that taken care of or they're not going to be at the top of their game ready to fight an eventual fight if we get there. So we are the Army Mad Scientist Initiative. We talk a lot about technology um, and we talk a lot about technology on this podcast. And there's a good reason because there's a lot of technology in the Army. But we have to always remember that technology is just a tool and the tool is going to be used by a human. We've done a lot of talking about how important the human is already today. So what are some of the trends and shifts you're seeing in the human capital area? How are employees today different from even a year ago? And how can organizations adapt to keep up with that change? Yeah, so so this is a really fascinating area to watch. And, you know, we, we talk about it in this concept of human betterment. But what I would say is that the power dynamics are shifting, where employees now have an outsized and a more important voice in shaping the way the, the choices that organizations make in the world. And uh, said, said differently, I think previously you had a executive team, the leaders of an organization who were saying, this is what this organization stands for. And these are, this is our strategic roadmap. And the employees executed on that. I think today what we're seeing is that employees are activists, they're activists outside the walls of uh, their corporations, but also inside the walls. And they expect for the purpose at the top and their purpose to be aligned. And when there's a misalignment between the way they want to live their lives, that misalignment doesn't work. So that requires uh, CEOs, uh, uh, leaders of organizations to understand, to hear uh, their employees, to shape uh, their organizations by bringing those two things together. And I think that is just a new, it's a new paradigm for leadership. I also think that many of the things that we care about, we know that our organizations can play a, a role in shaping, but they can't do it alone, right? And that kind of gets into a, another territory that we call shared futures, where let's just take a topic like uh, climate change. I mean, any organization, we can we can take a magnifying glass on our supply chain, on packaging of our products. We can ask questions about uh, the waste we produce as an organization. We can think about educational programs within our within within our own walls. All of those things are are incredibly valuable. But in order to really make a difference, it is it is really. I'm not thinking about your competitors or your adjacent industries um, as people that you don't work with. You, you have to come together because if we're really going to tackle uh, changes in society that truly make a difference for our employee base, it re requires a broader ecosystem than just the organization. So it's not just about the army. It's about the army and the broader ecosystem around it. It's not just about PepsiCo. It's about the, the broader ecosystem that, that's wrapped around it. And I think employees are seeing that. They, they, they want to see that their leaders are thinking beyond the organization, that they're showing up in the world and using their wealth, their privilege, their capabilities in order to make the world a better place, which ladders back up to the concept of human betterment. I think that's an important consideration, like you said, uh, for the army as well, because it's not just the army, it's it's the overall surrounding. And I think um, just segueing to, to something that I thought was really interesting coming out of the report is about how being risk averse by organizations in a post-pandemic world is in itself a big risk. And I've seen this before, um, kind of this point being made of, you're not actually avoiding uh, loss, you're just avoiding loss very quickly. So you're losing over time. Um, organizations have to be nimble and agile and adaptive, but how can that be translated to an organization is traditionally pretty risk averse by nature, um, very large and, and historically slow to adapt like the U.S. Army? It's a great question. So I, I think this truly has been accelerated out of the pandemic, right? And you, you said it well, Luke. I mean, it is for many organizations, it's how do I avoid risk? How do I protect my assets? How do I think about threat mitigation? And I think what we're reframing this to um, is a focus on resilience. How do we build organizations that are resilient and they have the capabilities that when change happens, and it will, 
you know, let's, let's say the pandemic, uh, I mean, it, it created the impact that it created. There'll be many more things that will create equal or greater impact. And I think um, leaders are now asking themselves a question of when we're on that side of change, if all we've done is try to mitigate the risk, we're going to be in chaos. But if what we're doing is building resilient employees, resilient leadership, and resilient scenarios to maneuver on the other side of that kind of vast change, uh, that's what the future needs to look like. I think this is really where the system comes in because so many companies, when the pandemic happened, came to Sparks and Honey and said, things have been blown up. Now, all the plans that I had are up in the air. Can you help us figure out where our category is going? And we did a ton of work last year in helping people navigate the disruptive forces of the pandemic. Fast forward to this year, the question is a little different. Um, we are having an influx of questions that are, that are less about the disruption from the pandemic, but more about how do I prepare myself for these type of events in the future? How do I build my own system so I, that I can measure and, and monitor policy change, that I can see around corners in real time, that I can have triggers at all levels of my organization so that we know when we need to take action and we can have, uh, we can be prepared early on. And so, you know, one of the very common constructs that we've been looking at is how do you build an AI-based along with human-based system that works for an organization to allow them to measure those changes in society and predict way before it happens when you need to be um, navigating to a new place or doubling down in a new area, which allows you to be much more resilient. And I think to do that, organizations have to provide tools at a couple of different levels. At one level, you have the, the most senior level people in any organization that are, that are making certain kinds of decisions. They need to have the information pushed to them and be able to see what those disruptive uh, forces are. There are people in the middle of the organization who are power users and intelligence experts, and they need to be able to go deep and run different scenarios, uh, so forth and so on. And there are um, areas that you identify, which could be these future scenarios, and you can't just identify them. You have to have a mechanism to uh, track changes over time so that you can flag when something is, is actually changing. And so we, we've been doing a lot of work, especially in 2021, on building resilient organizations and the uh, methodologies and the technologies that are, that are required in an organization in order to do that. And I think it takes you in a completely different space than avoiding risk. You know, like avoiding risk, you're, you're, you're like, it, it, it's just a completely different uh, uh, mind space. Yeah, I've always, in my experience anyway, I've always seen organizations or individuals who say they are risk averse are actually more change averse. There's something very comforting about maintaining the status quo, whether it's a good decision or not. Um, so I want to talk about diversity now. The diversity, diversity is important. Countless studies have shown the benefits of a diverse team or group or workforce. And we're not just talking about racial diversity, but cultural diversity, diversity in age, background, religion. How can an organization tackle this problem and move on from simple conventional hiring quotas to creating true inclusion initiatives while mitigating some of the deep-seated or institutional biases that may be prevalent? And what are some of the tangible benefits of doing so? Great question. Um, so let me let me give you a couple of things to think about. I, I want to give you one thing that I think is maybe different than uh, conventional wisdom. So when it comes to diversity, I think for way too long, um, this topic, diversity, equity, and inclusion has resided in the human resources department. It has been a thing that you're, you go to HR for, and, and we ask the questions like, who are we hiring? What are those quotas? Are we retaining individuals? Are you setting up an ERG? Oh, you know what? We Maybe we're not doing as well as we need to. So why don't you uh, head of people, hire a chief diversity officer. And it lives in this little self-contained group that never becomes at the heart of decision-making. And I think that is the flaw in, in where we've been for the last decade. I think what is a counter to that is making DE&I uh, the CEO's agenda. 
you know, like if you were making the decisions about your organization and putting DEI as one of the cornerstones in every decision, then that would change everything. We, we talk about a concept called the diversity operating system. What does a diversity operating system look like for an organization? Could be the army, could be the Department of Defense, could be Ford Motors. And it impacts four different areas. It impacts the people. And those, those people are the, the, the humans that we've been talking about. And those are within your walls and outside your walls. And so how do you think about diversity, equity, inclusion along that line? Second, what you put out into the world. So you, you have one type of product in the Army and, and, a, and a Fortune 500 company would have a different type of product. But are we taking um, a DNI lens to everything we produce, right? And uh, a third is what are the practices, the, the, the policies, the ways of working that we have? And are we asking those, those questions? And the fourth is the partnerships, the people that we collaborate with, do they have our same values in DEI outside our walls? And are we bringing that inside our walls? When you tackle those four Ps and you do it from the top of the organization, and going back to what we talked about earlier, you are listening to your employee base and understanding their needs in that process. I think you have a recipe for making progress in this space. When you keep it to an HR function and you set a quota for the number of uh, black employees you're going to bring in and that's all you do, it is never going to, to, to make a difference in the world of diversity, equity, inclusion. So how do you measure success in diversity? Is it quantifiable? Is there some other way to look at it? I mean, how do you really know that you are actually doing what needs to be done? Yes, yeah, it's, it, it's another great question. So I think that there is a broad answer, which is I think you can uh, set goals for your organization, whatever those are, and those could be softer goals, um, which are more um, people oriented, or they could be really hard and fast goals that are connected to whatever your core product is. But I think the most important piece of advice I could give to someone who's trying to move the needle on any of these efforts is diversity is big. It's, it's this big, complex thing. And when you start pulling back the layers, you realize that you're talking about so many different aspects of diversity. And people um, then try to jump in, you know, feet first and try to tackle diversity holistically. And they, and they rarely move the needle. What I would suggest is that you can't do everything. And this is, and it is a journey. And I think that you have to be laser focused and you have to say, on this leg of the journey, we're going to tackle these eight things. And this is important to our employees. This is important to, to the uh, leadership of the organization. And we're going to measure our success against those 10 things. And I think when you bring it down, it's just like anything, you bring it down to a tangible uh, group of areas, then you're going to get really good because you can focus. I'll give you an example. I mean, we did this at Sparks and Honey. We set out 10 commitments uh, last year. You can see them on our website. But one of them was just trying to retain and bring in uh, more black employees. And uh, we've seen, you know, the, the, the population at large is roughly 13% of, of the U.S. population is black. We went from 12% at that time to 20% over the last 12 months. But it takes, you can't try to move everything at the same time. We also, we have a really uh, diverse population of LGBTQ but we know in society that there's not enough conversation around trans and uh, non-binary talent. And so we really put extra effort into that. We went out to organizations. We did very specialized things in, in that area. And we've seen tremendous movement. And so I, I, I just say that, that the goals have to be aligned to the commitments and the commitments have to be focused because you can't take on everything in parallel. And I think it's one of the biggest mistakes. We want to build diverse organizations, but that's a journey. It's gonna take you know six months, 12 months, 24 months, and you gotta see, and it's gonna ebb and flow a little bit. I mean, it's not gonna be a, a, a perfect, uh, you know, straight pathway to um, all of those goals. I think you bring up an excellent point when we think about approaching diversity, not as um, just a quota, 
but overall and comprehensive. And this is actually something we've seen overall with HR. There's a, a great book in the Talent War uh, that talks about it can't be just a, a one-time process. It has to be constantly embedded throughout the organization. And I think that's incredibly important. But I also like that you talked about kind of those quantifiable, more tangible goals within that because you see large organizations and we see it right now with a ton of big multinational corporations who say we want diversity and we want uh, inclusiveness. What do you see actually coming out of that? I mean, it, it happens, uh, but sometimes we're just seeing a lot of billboards and maybe not as much action to transform the organization. And I, I just kind of want to follow up with that. You know, you've you've worked for Sparks and Honey with some major corporations, huge organizations, uh, as you talked about, like PepsiCo. Um, when we look at something like that and this giant organization, and again, we talked about how hard it is to change these massive organizations. When we look holistically, not just at diversity, but overall from the report, when we look at equity in those organizations, what kind of advice do you give to to major, um, huge entities that have to make this kind of huge change? Yeah, I, I, th I think I would, uh, Luke, say three things. One, I've already said, which is focus, focus, focus. Very, you know, make your commitments, be transparent about the commitments, have them not only from the top, but have your employees buy in and then measure them on a, on a regular basis. The second is we have an advisory board member. Her name is uh, Dr. Vivian Ming. She's a neuroscientist. She uh, uh, studies artificial intelligence and she writes on a concept called uh, the diversity innovation paradox. And, and she talks about this idea that um, the reason, one reason that we don't have more diverse teams driving innovation and outputs in the world is because of a inherent thing in our brain that we automatically trust people who are like us and we want to surround ourselves and, and it's not that we're we're doing it in an unconscious way we we want to be surrounded by other people like us because that increases the trust factor and that trust factor is what we need in order to get to the other other end of delivering some kind of big new concept and so we have to almost break a way we're wired type of thing in our brain in order to build a more diverse team we have to take we have to take risk that go against our own gut you know like and I, and I think that is that's that's a when, when she talks about it it makes me think that many leaders just need an awakening on that point that oh my bias is always going to be for um, mitigating my own risk by having people that are like me and my brain is telling me to do it so how can I get myself out of that habit and and approach this in a different way so I, I think that that that's that's the second piece and I and I will tell you um, diversity attracts diversity, right? <laughs> I mean, like there, there's there's no question. If you have uh, a board of directors and there's no diversity, you know, you have to start somewhere. But when you get people in positions of um, of leadership, and other people can see that they made it and that they can accomplish something, being from that background, it inspires others to join. And it inspires others to stick around, right? And and I think sometimes some of the tweaks at the top will help bring people along. It, it cannot be the only thing you do because at a certain point you've got to get it to where it's happening at scale, right? It, it can't just be a, a select few. But I think that is one of the places where you can start to see some some rapid change if you align those three things together. Yeah, those are some some really great points, and we've talked a lot on the podcast and on the blog about cognitive biases. And, and it's not that there's no cure for them. You know, that's part of being human. They've helped us evolve to where we are now. We, we need them, but we also have to be aware of them and make sure that we're, we're not letting them take us in the wrong direction. So I think that's, that's an excellent point. Um, I want to transition now to what we, we have here. Our, we call them our rapid fire questions. So these are three questions we always ask every guest and they just tell us a little bit more about our guests personally. The first one is what technology or trend keeps you up at night? Hmm. Um, great question. 
I, I guess the, the, the technology that we talk the most about is AI. And I think there are many, many different aspects of it that, that I think are empowering, but also concerning, right? And I think one is back to, to, to data and, and diversity, what we're, what we're talking about is, you know, the, the algorithms that make decisions at scale, are they diverse? Have we fed them with diverse data? Are we putting an, an artificial intelligence ethics lens on top of those algorithms so that as we allow AI machine learning to do what it can do at scale, have we thought about how it could impact the world at large from a um, diversity uh, standpoint? I think a second is just the displacement of certain marginalized groups that can be more impacted by the advancements in AI than others. And this is one thing that we don't talk about in this particular paper, but we looked a lot at in the future of giving. Um, you know, there, there are certain groups that are going to be disproportionately uh, impacted um, by the emergence of certain types of technology in the AI sphere. And that's going to require policy as well as um, nonprofits, uh, even government institutions stepping in to ensure that we don't leave those groups further behind. And so those, those are some of the things that I that I think about as it relates to AI. That, that's a very interesting second point that I, I've never really thought about. And I'm going to have to do some research on or, or you know, start thinking about a little bit more. Um, the second question here, what's something about you that most people might not know that you're willing to now share with several thousand podcast listeners? <laughs> wow, that's great. Um, gosh, what, we, we didn't talk about my, my background at all. So, I mean, a couple of, of probably interesting facts is um, I grew up in Kentucky. I spent uh, two and a half years in Uralsk, Kazakhstan in the Peace Corps. So I, and I did that at, at mid-career in my, in my early 30s going to Peace Corps. And it's a funny story. I actually lived with a family in Kazakhstan for two years. And it just happens that uh, the son who was 16 when I was there, he's 32 now, him, his mother and father, his family are all here and they're going to come visit for the weekend tomorrow. So I'm going to get to spend a little time with the, the family that I that I lived with for two years. And I haven't seen his mother for 16 years. So it's kind of an amazing, going to be a nice uh, time to, to, to come back together with them. That's really cool. The timing of that is amazing. Yeah. Uh, I, I hope you have a great time with them. That's going to be awesome. Um, our final question um, this really helps us delve into the personality of our guests. And this is probably the question that Luke and I will silently but personally judge you on the most is what is your favorite movie? <laughs> oh, my gosh. You're probably this is going to be embarrassing, I guess. But I do love this movie so much. There's a movie in the early 80s called On Golden Pond. And I I've made everyone watch it. But I feel like I, I'm the, the solo fan of that particular movie. It's a beautiful, I don't know if you've seen it, but it's a beautiful movie about coming of age of a young kid and, these, and he lives with the grandparents and the connection between a, like a 14-year-old and an 80-year-old, you know, coming into that rite of passage and then dealing with death on the other side. Love that movie. I haven't seen it, but I'm going to reserve judgment <laughs> because it doesn't, it doesn't sound like the way you describe it, it sounds beautiful. It's not something that I'm going to judge you on negatively anyway. It's very beautiful. It's got Catherine Hepburn and Henry Fonda. Oh, there so you it go. sounds like something worth watching. Jane Fonda, and um, he won. I think he won an Oscar for it. It's it's just a beautifully shot movie on this. Uh, but you know, I, I it, it's an acquired taste. So before I let you go, I do want to ask one more question. Can you tell us about the name Sparks and Honey? Yeah, sure. So uh, 10 years ago, when we started the company, I wrote the business plan and it was uh, funded by um, Omnicom. Omnicom is a big uh, conglomerate in the advertising industry. And we, with the people that were there, we were like, what, you know, we we're thinking about this concept, which we were calling then wave branding, how you identify something in the very 
uh, when it's very beginning to emerge and how you ride it over time, right? It was a little bit more in the marketing context than it is in, in the space that we play today. And so a uh, person who worked with me on, on founding the company uh, came up with the name, his name's Tim Edis, um, and the, the concept was uh, the spark being the little spark of culture that, that is beginning to, to ignite and the honey, the stickiness between that and the organization. So that kind of like those two things coming together. Awesome. Love it. Before we let you go again, is there anywhere people can follow you? Are you on Twitter? Uh, where can people see your work? Anything like that? Yeah, definitely. I mean, go to uh, sparksandhoney.com. You can download the report that we talked about today. You can download um, any of our other reports. I didn't even talk about it, but one of the most fascinating things that we do is three days a week, we produce a cultural briefing where we bring in people who are thinking about the latest developments in culture and we dissect them in real time. So it is aired live on Facebook, on LinkedIn, but we tackle all kinds of different topics and it airs three days a week. When we're back in studio, we have a full studio, six cameras where we bring people in and we unpack those, those signals so people can check us out in the cultural briefing. They can check us out um, on, on Facebook, LinkedIn. Of course, I have Twitter, so you can check me out there. Um, and we, we have um, new IP pieces launching every couple of months. So it's, it's a great place to, to get a little um, ignition or you know little fuel of culture. That's awesome. So, so Terry, Sparks and Honey, they're out there. They are available. Uh, you can see them on Twitter on their website. Uh, so, Terry, I just want to say thank you for coming on the show. Thank you for helping us learn about some new concepts, about cultural intelligence, about the future of work. We really appreciate it. Now, when you come to Mad Scientist, you can't get out of Mad Scientist. So we're going to have you back on something. You got to keep in touch. You can check out, but you can never leave. <laughs> Love it. Thanks a lot, Terry. Thanks, Terry. Thank you. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Terry Young, CEO of Sparks and Honey. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps us to improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.